All right, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, but especially of those who believe. Lord, we pray that as we come and hear your word preached, that you would Fill our hearts with your spirit, Lord, and that we would, by the strength of your spirit, have ears to hear, a mind that is sharp and attuned to the words that you're to speak to us today, and a heart ready to change and to receive if we do need to receive correction or rebuke and and encouragement where that is needed as well. But Lord, all in all, we want, after hearing these words and praying and partaking of communion and singing to you, to walk out of here loving you better and knowing you more than when we arrived. Lord, fill me with your spirit that I may preach your word rightly and in the manner in which you want it to be conveyed. In your name and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are, at this point, kind of in the middle of a thought, as far as Paul goes. Um, This is an unfortunate place for a break, but that's okay. If we back up and remember what we looked at last week, it begins with, now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars and whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything is created by God pardon me for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed now most of your bibles here at that point have a break in between verses 5 and verses 6. I think that that's unfortunate. I think that the things that in verse 6 we are commended to put forth is to watch out for people who want to rip you off, who want to tell you false teachings, and want to steal your faith away. 
And the reason I think that is because he goes on to talk about godliness, and that's a clear contrast to what he's just talked about. Because these people who have been taught and trained by deceitful spirits and demons, who have their consciences seared and are liars and speaking lies from the enemy, are purporting to give you a way of godliness that is an end around of faith in Christ, that is done by you abstaining from certain things, works righteousness. You want godliness? Of course, who doesn't? Whoever follows God wants godliness. Well, there are some secret ways. There are some super duper ways to do it, if you will. And those ways are abstaining from certain foods. Going back to the law of the Old Testament, if you will, and abstaining from certain things or just outright making up new laws and saying, now here's some new foods you're supposed to abstain from. Forbidding of marriage. You're more righteous, you're more holy if you are just yourself, you and the Lord, on a rock somewhere, something along those lines. But we're told that everything is to be received with thanksgiving and prayer, foods and uh, marriage, and that nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy through the word of God and prayer. You see, what brings about holiness is the word of God and prayer, not your works. It's one of the biggest problems the church has always faced from day one, I mean, right? This is way back from the very beginning. Here in the beginning, works righteousness is something that's hammered into you and driven at you and on display with flashing lights. And it sounds so good. It sounds so right that if you do these specific actions, God will love you more. God will like you more. And you will become a more righteous, a more sanctified person. My mind goes just today to another church I was at where I preached, and they sang the oldie but goodie, I say with air quotes, Blessed Assurance. Are you familiar with that song? It's like you're skating in a ring. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. You know that one? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Well, what's the foretaste? How can I now foretaste of glory divine? Well, the song goes on to tell you, perfect submission is how verses 2 and 3 begin. The whole idea of that song is if you are to have any type of blessed assurance in this life, here and now, the way to achieve that goal and to receive a taste of glory divine, a little taste of heaven, is perfect submission. Works. It's all about you perfectly submitting to Christ. Now, the implications of that song do go so far as sinless perfection. And some people in that day and age in the Keswick movement that Fanny Crosby was a part of, where that song came out of, certainly did believe that. Not everybody, don't get me wrong. I'm not throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater there. But there certainly were strains and veins in that movement. And let's be honest, in every movement, 
there are those kinds of people that are works-based. I look back at my times in Calvary chapels that I was in, and there were definitely certain pastors who, when you heard them, were very much along the lines of a promoting of a more works-based righteousness. Now, I'm not saying they're demonic. (laughs) I'm not saying they're deceitful liars with their consciences seared. But let's be honest. There's something within us that just when we hear salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, says there's got to be more to it than that. There just has to be. That is so simplistic that I don't know if I can believe that. There has to be something I have to do. Now, we don't, when we think those thoughts, and if you're a person who's breathing and following Christ, you've thought those thoughts or something similar to them somewhere along the line. There's something within us that wants to contribute. And maybe it isn't, I am consciously thinking, Christ's sacrifice wasn't good enough, I have to do something. That's not what we're mostly consciously thinking. Most of the time is we feel kind of a sense of obligation and duty that if he did all that, gosh, I got to do something. And so we do these things and we subtly, but deceptively, think that we're more right with God when we do those things than we would be if we just simply believed and trusted in him. So we are a good servant of Jesus Christ if we put before the people who we talk to as a pastor, speaking specifically to me, I'm a good servant if I put before you justification by faith alone in Christ alone. You're saved by grace through faith. It is not through works. It is not through some other end around. It's not through some effort on your part. You don't have to contribute in this way to your righteousness. Now, it says, though, as we move on, that we are trained in the words of faith and good doctrine that you have followed. And the rest of the passage talks about us being trained in godliness. Godliness has value in every way. To this end, we toil and strive. I thought it wasn't about us working. Why are we, pardon me, why are we striving and training and working, toiling in this if this isn't equating with my righteousness? It sure sounds like I'm being trained for godliness. It sure sounds like the very opposite of what you're saying, Pat. So what does this have to do with our righteousness if it does at all? How does this fit in with us being justified by faith? Well, first of all, we know that in Romans 10, I, it's, I, I, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I think that's verse 14 maybe. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You can't trust in Christ if you've never heard about him. And our faith comes from him. It isn't something super uber duber that God does. I didn't just, I just didn't say that right. Let me back up. 
it isn't something super that we do. We hear God's word, he does a work in our hearts, and we believe it and we trust it. We hear from his word, it resonates within us because he's doing a work. We don't know it necessarily at the time that it's him doing it, but he's doing a work within us, and we believe and we trust in him. So we are trained by the words of faith and good doctrine that we have followed. So the way we are trained is by hearing the word of God, hearing the word of God, hearing the word of God, hearing the word of God and believing it. This is why for us Bible study is so important. Now, in the first century, they didn't always have all of the books of the Bible. And so they heard what they could hear and believed what they were taught And a lot of times it was hearsay. Sometimes people never saw one of these put together, but only heard sermons as they heard from other apostles and other teachers and from other men who had been taught by Christ and by his followers. So as long as they followed the faith and they followed this good doctrine, it was good and it was beneficial for them. We are to train ourselves, verse 7, the end of verse 7 there, for godliness. First of all, let me say this. If we're to do this, then what we're being told to do, clearly, because it's the Apostle Paul himself, is a different manifestation of godliness than us being justified by faith. Because Paul is crystal clear in so many of the books that he writes about our salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So we are not talking about here when we're talking about training ourselves, talking about salvation. This is not a salvation issue. This is something more than that. We can call it, to use a big fancy word, sanctification. This is how we, as we become members of the body of Christ, members of the family of God, adopted into the family of God, this is how we become more like him, and which is what we pray all the time, don't we? Lord, may we walk out of these doors knowing you better and loving you more than we did when we came in. Well, one of the ways that we do that is by being trained here in godliness. So while this training is not contributing to my salvation, It's a result of the salvation God has worked out within me. He has saved me, and now I am continually walking more and more and becoming more and more like him. We can, in a very broad sense, say, I am being saved one day to be ultimately saved in Christ Jesus. But that's not the normal way we talk. What we're looking at here is how we as Christians become more like him having been born again. This is not something an unbeliever can do. The things that we're talking about here is not something a non-Christian can do. Only Christians live like this. Only Christians can train themselves for godliness. And the reason is, is because only Christians have the spirit of God indwelling them and have been born again. And we alone have the new affections, the new desires, the new want-tos, the new proclivities to follow him in his way. So, spiritual life, then, does not happen automatically. Spiritual life, for the Christian, does not happen automatically. 
Deuteronomy chapter 4. So if you're going to flip with your fingers a little bit here in the Bible, if you want to follow me, if you just want to listen, that's fine too. You can look these up later if you like. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, when you're in tribulation and all these things are coming upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God and he will not leave you or destroy you Or forget the covenant he made with your fathers that he swore to them. Now that all is good news there. Contained in those few short verses, we see we will find the Lord when we seek him with all of our heart and soul. Now, nobody's, (laughs) let's be honest, nobody's ever done that a 100%. Here he's not talking about a perfectly 100% pure effort. He is clearly here talking to the nation of Israel about their needing to repent once they've fallen away from the true and living God. But it doesn't mean it doesn't have application for us. We know that we find God, as it were, when we have experienced that new birth where he has caused us to be born again and the covenant with us is now this new covenant that he made with us and now we seek him with our heart with our soul with our mind and our strength because it has been renewed by him he says that we're going to go through tribulation and these things will certainly happen to us and do happen to us the good news is is the lord is a merciful god So even while you're seeking him with your heart and soul as a Christian, a part of the new covenant, you will go through tribulation and difficult times. Some of you will endure through that tribulation. Sometimes some people will struggle a whole lot more than others. That's part of life. Sometimes it is a dark path that we go down. Sometimes it truly is the valley of the shadow of death that we feel like we're walking through. We find comfort in the passage that says there is no temptation given among men that he won't provide for us a way of escape. Right? We find comfort in that. However, that is not a complete verse or even a complete sentence. The end of it is so that you can endure it. The way of escape through trial and temptations is to endure it. Now, I'm sorry, that is not the happiest message to hear. Frankly, it's difficult to hear that sometimes because we just want pain to quit. how, How many times have all of us had sins that we've struggled with and we have all prayed these very same words? Lord, please take away blank. Lord, please take this blank, whatever it is, from me. Lord, I don't want to go through whatever it is anymore. Please, Lord, take it. Only to find ourselves there in the same place. It feels like the same rut, putting the same foot in front of the same other foot, not feeling like we're getting very much of anywhere. Right? 
God is a merciful God. Sometimes sanctification is a slog. Sometimes being training for godliness is difficult. God did not promise it would be an easy, happy, clappy cakewalk. I, one of the churches that I went to recently, and listening to the songs that they're singing, every single one was, God, you're so magnificent and you love me. God, you're so big and so fantastic and stars shimmer around your head and you love me and I'm the object of all of your affection and you make my life great. You make my life super duper. That's nearly a quote from one of the songs. How do they do it, I wonder? I'm sitting there and I'm hearing them singing and I go, how do they do this? How do they do it when they're, when, when they're going through a real serious trial in life? Their financial situation is completely collapsed and they have no hope to see through the next night if they're going to have any way to make ends meet. How are they going? What do they do when they're in the midst of a trial where everything seems to go wrong? They're laid off from their job and they have no hope of a job in the future. What do they do when their house is burned down and they come down the hill and now they can't find a place to live and they can't find this and everything seems so lost? What do they do when their family member who they love, whether it's a husband or a wife or one of their children, suffers a grievous illness and dies and their stupid song that says, Jesus, you heal all our sicknesses, is not true. What do they do? What do we do? Well, hopefully in that moment, we've been trained for godliness. We've been trained in godliness. Because what this means is that we believe God for who he really is revealed in Scripture. He's not the God who is the good, sweet grandpa who just wants everything to go right for you and nothing wrong and gives out spiritual Werther's originals to you. Little, little gems of goodness. Just plop them right on your tongue and everything will be fine there, little buckaroo. No, he not only allows us to go through hard times, but he ordains us to because that's where the training happens. Look, I haven't run in a long time. It's self-evident. However, when I was a regular runner, it was hard. <laughs> I loved it. I loved what? Well, no, I loved the end of it <laughs> when I was done with it. But it was hard to just run and run and train myself for it. It was hard to do. But it produced good fruit. And that's with any training. It's no matter if you want to be a fast typist, if you want to drive a forklift, if you want to fly a helicopter, if you want to, whatever it is that you want to do, there is going to be training that comes with it. And the training is going to be repetitive and difficult and sometimes outright boring and hard. But it's worth it because you end up growing by it. (laughs) 
in Psalm 1. You know this passage. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's a hard thing. to. You have to focus your mind on God. Meditate, you know the phrase, it means focusing your mind on God on one subject. And here the subject is godliness. Here the subject is God. Because the more I think about God, the more I become like God. The more I read my Bible and see God for who he is and read about his character, I become more like him. I want patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If I want any one of those things, or all of those things too, it's going to take me looking to the Lord and seeing him for who he is because he is all of those things perfectly and knowing him more and more and more. And the more I know him and pray to him and ask him for this, even though he's not going to immediately take away my problems. In fact, those problems might cause me to love and have joy and find peace and walk in patience and act in kindness to be good towards other people, to be kind to other people when they're going through difficult times and to exhibit self-control. Oftentimes those things we feel like are the worst things that could possibly happen are the means by which God is using to get us to this end of godliness. That is not a positive message. <laughs> this, is, it, I'm gonna, this is a difficult word to preach to you. And it's a difficult word to preach to myself. But it is the truth of God's word and it's important that we hear it and not try to whitewash certain things and for me to tell you things are going to be better than they actually might be. Now bodily exercise, verse 8, is of some value and here he uses the same example I just used. I got it from him. Don't make a mistake there. (laughs) It wasn't the other way around, of course. But godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is valuable because it holds a promise for the present life. What is this promise for the present life? Well, 1 John is such a good book. Not ideal to preach through always, but it is a really gem of a passage says here in the first chapter of 1 John this is the message we heard from him, Jesus we proclaim it to you God is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, 
We're using our mouth to say one thing, professing one thing, and yet we are living a life, something completely different. We are living in a duplicitous way, right? An insincere way, a hypocritical way. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So how is the godliness in value every way as it holds a promise for the present time? Well, it shows us that we are truly his. It causes us to be more like him. And as we grow and we become more like him, we see him more for who he is. And our fellowship with one another grows and strengthens. As I see you walking with Christ, I am encouraged to walk with him. And we more and more as a family, as a group of believers, are becoming more and more like Christ. But more importantly, we are in the light. We're not walking in darkness. We're not liars and we're not deceitful. That we're truly walking in the light that he has given to us and we're walking according to the way God would have us live. It holds a promise for the present life because this is what God wants for us. To live like him, not like the rest of the world. John's going to go on to say the world didn't know Jesus and that's why they killed him. And if the world didn't know him and didn't love him, then they're going to treat us the same way. And so that's another aspect of how it's going to be difficult to walk as a godly Christian. Now in John's day, you could have died for it. We don't have that same threat of our life hanging over us right now yet. I don't know if in my lifetime we will here in America. I think that there are some other things that will probably come first. But needless to say, being a Christian is a costly thing. But it's worth it. Oftentimes costly things are worth it. And this ultimately is. We have to, what it costs us is our old self. What it costs us is our affiliation with the world. What it costs us is our comfortable, normal patterns of life, our default, our our bent that our natural bodies want to go. And also for the life to come. We are preparing for the big day where we are with the Lord. And while we might say, well, when we're with the Lord, we're going to be perfected anyway, so it doesn't really matter how I live on this life now, that's... That's contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that those who are born again have these new spirits and will therefore act in new ways. And as we act in new ways, godly ways, what we're going to do is we're going to prove ourselves through our works, not be saved by our works, Not obtain a righteousness by our works, but we're going to increase in the manner in which God has called us to in his family. And some of these things are going to be burnt up in the last day, wood, hay, and stubble, and some of them will be precious stones. These crowns that were promised all throughout the New Testament for various different things are probably not literal crowns, but they're probably aspects of experiencing and rejoicing in heaven in a way that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. What does that look like? I don't know. 
I guess I'll be able to tell you when I get there. (laughs) But as it stands right now, what I do know is that Paul here is very clear and that he says godliness is profitable for this life now and for the life to come. So the question before we move on is, are you living a godly life now? Are you living in a manner where you're training yourself for godliness? Nobody's talking here about sinless perfectionism. Nobody here is talking about a radical expectation of uber spirituality. What we're talking about is, are you day in and day out striving to be a little bit more like Jesus? That's what we're talking about. So don't hear me saying more than I'm actually saying. We want to become a little bit more like Jesus each and every day. And that's what being trained in godliness is. So, are we growing in godliness? Because verse 9 says, This saying is trustworthy and full of accept... Uh, worthy... Uh, deserve, <laughs> this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The saying is this... Train ourselves for godliness. You see, we toil and we strive because we have our hopes set on the living God. You see, what we're striving for, what we're toiling for, what we're working for here in this life shows what we have our our heart set on. If our heart is set on compromise and ease, then that's what we're going to live. If our heart is set on riches and glory, then... That's the way we're going to live. That's where our training and our lifestyle is going to go. But if our hope is set on the living God, then our training is going to go towards that, where our hope is. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, God says. That where your heart is, there your life, your eye, your desire, your hope may be also. And then we have this cryptic closing. Well, it's not cryptic. I shouldn't say that. But this closing. Who is the Savior of all people, but especially of those who believe? This is a verse that has, or not even a verse, but a sentence, part of a sentence that has caused a lot of difficulty over the years. But we have our hopes set on the living God. God is the Savior of all people, but especially of those who believe. Now, first of all, notice he's not naming the name of Christ there, but rather broadening it out to the living God. That should tell us right there that he is speaking in a manner that's going to be bigger and broader than just simply Christ himself. So here we cannot, no matter what it says, we can't come away with the saying that he is the Savior of all people in two senses. One, that it's universalism. That he's actually going, saving all people everywhere at all times, irregardless of anything else, especially in light of what we've just read. <laughs> he's not also a potential savior. Meaning that he's the savior of all people, but only kind of hypothetically. And now it's up to you to believe in him. Because that's not a savior at all. Because he's not a hypothetical savior. If he's a savior, then he actually did save in. So what is this actually saying? He is the savior of all people, but especially of those who believe gives us the answer. He's the savior that is for all people. Meaning, I can go anywhere on the face of the world, 
any time, any place, if I had a time machine, I could go back and do this too. I can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and know for certain that this person I'm preaching can hear this and has the responsibility to turn and believe. This person has God as the Savior offered to them. They're responsible to repent and believe, but they're probably going to retain their rebellion and continue to walk away from him. But he is especially the Savior of those who believe because those are the ones he's actually saved. He is the Savior for all people that is offered to all peoples everywhere at all times. But who does he actually save those who believe? The sentence itself gives us the meaning behind these words. So here, to close it up, what we do is we toil, we strive, because we have our hope, our heart set upon the living God. So as we do sing our finishing songs and partake of communion, the, maybe the question to ask ourselves and walk away from is, Lord, in what areas are you wanting to train me in godliness? Where does my focus need to lie? Where does my attention need to be? What, Lord, are you doing in me that leads me to godliness? Because, Lord, I want to be trained in godliness because I have my hope set on you. I love him. He's my God and my Savior. And I want what he wants for me. Lord, we pray that you would take this idea of godliness and that you would really, within us, do that plowing and that work of growing within us that which you want to see, that good fruit that you said we will bear as Christians. That we are supposed to be those who are living for your glory and bringing fruit that bears your name and brings you honor and bring you praise. And so, Lord, as we think about this word godliness and we think about the idea of how we as people who love you and have been born again by you how can we become more like you lord how can we grow in your grace how can we grow in our understanding of you how can we grow in the mercy that you've given to us so that we might become more godly in this life and more ready for the life to come thank you jesus in your name amen